0: Today on the Broly Talks Hockey Podcast, I am joined by the senior writer at the Hockey News, Matt Larkin. We discuss how he got his start at the Hockey News after Western University. Some NHL trade rumors, including the analytics darling himself, Vince Dunn, and how he could be heading to a post-rebuild team. Plus, in this week's Hot Seat, Matt and I discuss John Tortorella's tenure in Columbus with the line and situation. All this and much more in this week's Broly Talks Hockey Podcast.
1: Honored to interview you. So how are you doing today, Matt? i'm good brody and I, I appreciate you having me on and i, I have to ask you when you, the the term broly is it does it mean like brody and goalie or is it bro and goalie or and are you a goalie and is that why this yeah, is, it's,
0: it's uh it is brody and goalie yeah not many people have linked that connection you're kind of i think you're the first one to link it all right because I, I was wondering i thought okay it could also be bro you know so i don't want to assume yeah. anything but uh okay i have the origin story excellent all right and the first topic I want to get into is kind of how you got your start in sports journalism. Uh, you graduated from Western University and then you wrote at a couple of websites before you got to the hockey news. So how'd you kind of, what kind of drove you into sports journalism? Like, was it writing
1: in a high school paper or anything like that? Yeah, it, it started for me at an extremely young age. Like if you were to go back in time and, and find nine-year-old me and tell him what I'm doing now, he would be thrilled because this is pretty much what he wanted to be doing because I was... A pretty sports obsessed kid. I memorized stats. I watched sports obsessively. When I played video games as a kid, you know, I was playing NHL 94 on my super Nintendo and I would, I would call the game. I would be an announcer and I would do full play-by-play by by myself in my basement, just in, just goofing around. And I always kind of dreamed of going down this route. Uh, so that in, in terms of my area of study in school, I, I kept going that way. And At Western, what really, I call it my true education, so my degree was in, it's a program called Media Information and Technoculture, a mouthful. It's basically media studies, but Western at the time had the only daily student newspaper in Canada. And it's the same place that trained Elliot Friedman, Steve Simmons, Stephen Brunt, there's been a lot of people that have come from there um, because it's, it's a very special, it's a special place because it really simulates the actual experience. It's got a full, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of advertising budget. It, it's, it printed at the time up to four times a week. So you experience the deadlines and I was running a sports section before eventually I was a managing editor, but you really did understand what the job felt like you were going to, you know, whether it was hockey games, basketball games, you were meeting those deadlines, interacting with players, coaches, all that kind of stuff. So when eventually, by the time I got to the hockey news covering the NHL, it was basically the same job. What I realized was, okay, I've been preparing for this. I've written thousands of stories already and it's different than the traditional journalism school route. And I do have a degree that's, you know, sort of like journalism. It's not officially a journalism degree, but it put me down the path to the student paper, which is where I got my real experience, the practical experience, and right out of school, because the Gazette, um, it's not daily anymore, it's more of an online resource now, but it had a pretty good reputation, I had good street cred. So I was able to get hired by Sportsnet uh, coming right out of school. And I was, I was writing the, the script for highlights on, on, the, on the, the highlight show, you know, every night, that kind of stuff, operating the teleprompter, Uh, all that kind of stuff and eventually I I bounced around over the years right and doing different Mm -hmm. freelance jobs but I eventually did settle uh, at the Hockey News and you know they do say it's about who you know and there was a tiny little connection that helped me get there so there was one employee of the Hockey News that had a nephew that was my old classmate in high school and that employee didn't have he wasn't allowed to even be involved in hiring me but it still got me in the door it still got my resume to be looked at right so I did have that little stroke of luck where there was one employee who did uh, have a, a little connection to me and I think that kind of gave me the little nudge I needed and here I am 10 years later and when you first got at the hockey news were you like, like
0: you're like were you thinking when you got there like yeah this is the job I want to keep doing
1: I think pretty much um, because it was a real privilege to be you know at the highest level at the pro level covering the NHL I started out as an editor and uh, and this is advice I would give to any intern anyone in an editing job who, who still aspires to write long term, I went in there with a the goal of just, you know, not trying to reach too high and, and and walk in like I own the place and and, you know, be asking to cover stores, cover the Leafs or whatever people tend to do. Mm-hmm. I just put my head down and tried to be the best editor I could I could be. And the ironic part is, by doing a good job, it, it eventually helped me get opportunities because you earn the trust of the staff, and then eventually I did uh, cross over to the writing side, and now that's where I am. But, um, yeah, when I started there, you know, I, I was a longtime hockey news reader as well, and. Since I was a little kid, one of my dreams was I always I had two big dreams. One was either to write movies and one was to cover pro sports and, and specifically hockey. So I was there doing it and uh, I figured, OK, let's let's build a career out of this. I'm at the Hockey News and I'm not going anywhere for a long time, I hope.
0: And what, do you, what would you say is the best part about being at the Hockey News or just being a journalist in, <clears throat> in general?
1: Um, I, I think that especially when you look at what's going on in the world today, you know, obviously in the last especially in the last five years and especially in the past year, With all the social unrest and the coronavirus, yes, you know, all the serious parts of the world do permeate the job, they do permeate the work more than they ever did. But overall, if you look at the big picture, the bigger percentage of what I do, it's still covering a sport. And I always tell people, you know, even on the worst day, on the most stressful day, it's never not hockey. And that's something that, you know, most people turn to as their entertainment, and I'm lucky enough to be doing it as a job. So even if I'm having a stressful day, I'm really tired. You know, I barely got any sleep. I have little kids, you know, baby up at night, all those things. And I kind of stop and say, okay, wait a second. I'm, I'm writing an article about Tyler Toffoli. Like there are people do- doing brain surgeries out there. And I, my job is still just to talk about hockey, write about hockey. So I, I feel extremely Privileged, um, and in terms of the favorite thing, you know, of course, going to different places, going to different arenas, experiencing new cities, you know, in a non-COVID world was a really awesome part of the job. Um, but I, I, I think the thing closest to my heart is being an awards voter. It's something that uh, I don't take lightly. I, I spend an insane amount of time. Uh, making my ballot every year. And I, I feel extra lucky that I get to be a, a voter every year on the heart and the Norris and the Calder, the Selkie, all that kind of stuff. And you talked a little
0: bit about COVID and when it shut down at the hockey news, like the NHL was, I think two days after the NBA, had shut down. What were you guys kind of thinking right when it shut down? Like what was kind of going through your heads?
1: Well, what was going through my head was, geez, it's really distracting. I'm trying to enjoy the sun and, and this beer, but uh, I can't because I was on a family vacation. So I, I I just, if it was a week later, everything shut down, we wouldn't have gone. We wouldn't have felt comfortable, but it was just in that period where people weren't quite sure how serious it was yet. And I was in Jamaica. We, I think we left March 6th and we got back and everything shut down two days later. So I remember being on the vacation. Every time I went up to my room, it was like, I was afraid to look at my phone because there was more and more scary news. It was the NBA And then it was, oh, Tom Hanks has it. And then the NHL shut down. And then by the time I got back, everything had changed forever. Uh, And I still have never even seen our office since then. It's been more than a year now. Um, but I, I kind of I understood, you know, you could feel the walls closing in and you you could see that at the time it was Columbus and San Jose were, were trying to still put on their games. I think without fans, they were the first teams to do it. But you could see that the writing was on the wall and, and the world didn't know enough about the virus yet, how to contain it, how to avoid, you know, transmitting it. They, people thought it was, you know, contact based and not breathing based at the time. Right. So mm-hmm. I had a feeling that it was going to be a long shutdown and, and it was. And did you find it a struggle to be working remotely? And you, you said you have a newborn child,
0: or do you find it a lot easier that you get to write sports articles at home and still be at home?
1: Oh, much, much, much more difficult. Um, I'd say the most challenging year I've ever had work-wise, um, because I also have a four-year-old. And, you know, with schools shut down, virtual schooling, extremely distracting. And um Yeah. You know, there, there are some advantages you can, you can sort of virtually jump all over the place geographically. So, you know, during the playoffs, for example, last year, they're playing games at all times of the day. You can be watching those games and via zoom, you parachute into any press conference you want to, you're covering, you know, you feel like almost like you can travel anywhere virtually. Right. So that's an advantage, but overall just um, you don't get the same access to players, coaches. It's much more difficult to do that when you're not in person, you always get, higher quality interviews and more of a personal connection when you're, when you're doing things live and and even just going to games live, you know, you see, and and obviously reporters can go now, but um, in a limited capacity, but the the full traditional experience, you gain a lot more doing that as well. Uh, And just, yes, having young kids at home, it's very distracting. And I I even, Mm -hmm. I remember uh, during the Stanley cup final, there was a press conference and, I, and it was my turn to ask a question. And then my daughter was like chasing after me. So I was trying to ask Tyler Sagan a question. I was hitting the mute button. I was running through my, my house, carrying my laptop, trying to get away from my daughter and try and get my question in. So, and I, and I thought, oh my God, this is the most 2020 thing ever. Cause it was 2020 at the time. Mm-hmm. And it kind of per- perfectly encapsulated how strange the year was. And speaking of interactions with coaches or players, what's the kind of the weirdest interaction you've, you've had as a journalist? Um, I've had a few, I, I think some of them came earlier in my career when I just, I, I hadn't gotten my confidence yet. And I, I, I uh, it's almost like, you know, what they say in sports, you've got to let the game come to you. And I think there were times when I was trying to force a storyline that didn't make any sense. And because I thought, okay, I have to have a story. I have to have an angle. And I would ask a question that really didn't fit and, and got a strange reaction. I think I remember it was when Henrik Lundqvist won the Vezina. And I like, I was trying to make an Eric Carlson on the North that year and I was trying and Evgeny Malkin won the, the heart. So I thought, okay, uh, it was my first time covering the awards. And I thought, oh, there's, I guess every player is European that won the award. So I thought, okay, I guess I'll try and push this angle. So I asked, like in the press conference, Henrik Lundqvist, is there, is there pride for European players winning all these awards? And he looked at me like I was from another planet and was like, uh, what? No. And he just kind of shut me down so hard. It was really embarrassing, but it was a good lesson because I realized like, don't force it. That wasn't a story. Don't force a storyline. that's not there. Just take it easy, take a deep breath and relax. So it was a good learning experience to not uh, try and force a storyline that just isn't there.
0: And with forcing storylines, have you ever felt with like trade rumors? I know the hockey news does like a trade deadline preview Have you ever felt like um, you've tried to force a rumor or anyone at the hockey news has forced a rumor and it just doesn't look good?
1: I think sometimes I think, um, you know, there are times when you're writing something that you know is going to stir the pot. And I think there's a difference between, you know, a, a real rumor is, is, you know, when a beat reporter covering a team has a real pulse of a team, or, or, you know, one of the top insiders is talking to an agent or a GM and really gets an inkling that something's going to happen. But I think there's also a difference when it comes to speculation. And, and sometimes you can look at things from just a pure hockey perspective. And I've, I've been guilty of this. I don't even want to think guilty because I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing but I might analyze and say okay this team should trade this guy this player would be a good fit for this team it doesn't mean that he's on the block it doesn't mean he's going to that team sometimes it ends up coming true because it really is a good fit from a hockey perspective but Mm -hmm. what can happen is that can be misconstrued so you put a story out you know the best you know let's say referring to a certain team okay these are some players they should trade for all of a sudden that player's name is in the news it's being shared on kind of news aggregator sites and it's created a rumor that was really just an idea, it wasn't a rumor, it was speculation. So you do have to be careful. And I think when you put something out there, you have to be really clear in your language. If you're just speculating that it's coming from yourself. Mm-hmm. I think it's okay to do that because it's it's analysis. And it's ironic, you know, we're still called the hockey news but the medium has changed so much because we don't publish the magazine uh, as much as we used to that mm-hmm. we're really, we're not first on many things. We're not really news breakers, we're more analyzers. So I almost, I kind of joke to myself sometimes that we're the hockey analysts rather mm-hmm. than the hockey news. Um, and sometimes analyzing requires you to inject a little bit of your ideas into your work and that can create those sort of fake rumors. And speaking of rumors, uh, I know a lot of
0: NHL teams lately have been looking for defensemen and it's kind of a, a rare commodity. And one of the ones I've taken a look at personally, a lot is Vince Dunn, uh, being from Winnipeg and around there, he's been linked it, not really linked to Winnipeg. I just think he'd be a great fit. So what are your kind of thoughts on Vince Dunn? Like, Do you think he's a good top pair guy or a shutdown defenseman? What are your thoughts on Vince Dunn?
1: Well, what's interesting about Vince Dunn is that we don't really know. Um, He's really talented. We know he's a good puck mover, and – Analytically, his numbers have been tremendous since his career started, but he's been extremely insulated. He's played often bottom pair minutes. He's been starting his shifts often in the offensive zone. He's been against the weakest competition. So he's really just beaten up on great matchups because he's been you know, a team that won the Stanley Cup, a great team. I think he's really good, but he's never really been put to the test until recently, just in the last month or so. He's starting to finally play a lot more. You're seeing him get you know, 23 minutes in a game, stuff like that. Um, but I think he's absolutely an attractive trade target. You know, you're going to have to work out a new contract with him as an RFA. But um, I think he has a lot to bring to the table in terms of his puck moving ability. I think he, long term, he's kind of blocked on the Blues because Tory Krug is in the role that would be Vince Dunn's best spot long term, you know, as a maybe top pair or at least top power play quarterback. And, and that's what Tory Krug's game is. That's that's, you know, his main strength. So there's a bit of a redundancy there. Um, based on that i do wonder if the blues would consider making him available and you know you're trying to get your roster figured out for the expansion draft as well um so i I do think there would absolutely be a market for for dunn i think the blues you know they don't have to move him because they they fashion themselves contenders if they can get healthy enough this year and they could still use dunn especially if there's an injury then he's your you know your power play quarterback Mm -hmm. but there are plenty of teams that need help on that left side i think the jets you know it was more the right side of their blue line that got ravaged last summer, of course, Mm -hmm. when they lost Buffalo and Tyler Myers, Jacob Truba, but overall their decor, this is a team that I think can be a Stanley cup contender was a high end contender a couple of years ago. uh, But I I think they need some more genuine top pair defensemen or top four defensemen. I think Josh Morrissey's regressed a little bit in the last year. um, And I think, you know, Ville Handel has got really good potential long-term, but if we're talking right now, I think Dunn is someone who could come in and help them and improve their mobility a lot on the left side. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think to me, the best fit for for Vince Dunn is a team that's like kind of rebuilding, but getting close to the end of the rebuild stage and and slightly on the upswing. So I have said this before, um, I think the LA Kings would be the type of team that I think should take a run at Vince Dunn because that's a team that, you know, they got a great prospect pool. They're getting better. Uh, and they're, they're threatening, they're flirting with playoff contention this year, but they don't have enough mobility from the back end. Um, they have it on the right side from Drew Doughty, who's having a really good year. Uh, but overall, I, I think they could use a lot more just sort of dynamic talent back there and Dunn would be a perfect type of player. I was just, it was just
0: going through my head when you said like a team that is coming out of rebuild, I just wrote down LA Kings. Like that's the team that I'm thinking of. And yeah, exactly. They're short on left-handed defensemen. Cause you got guys like Sean Walker and Matt Waugh even who could be long-term right-handed defense, but you look at the left side, they're really shortened. And what do you think would be a fair value for Dunn? Like, would it be a first in an A plus prospect or what do you think kind of the blues would want?
1: Uh, I don't necessarily think both because Dunn is still relatively unproven in terms of being handed a major role, but mm-hmm. maybe it's, you know, a good prospect and a second or a first and that's it, something like that. So maybe one or the other, but I think both would be a pretty steep ask. Um, but the good news is, you know, it's not like he's a pending UFA. He's not a rental. He's under team control. So you're you get him for next year and beyond. Um, but I, I think, I think that would be a fair guess. I know there's been debate over whether he's worth the first round pick. I feel like he, Maybe it's if it's a team that's a contender and thinks that's going to be a low first rounder. I think I think it's possible, especially uh, if it's for the coming draft class, which I don't think is considered as sexy as this past year's or next year's 2022's mm-hmm. draft class. So I think that's a fair a fair uh, estimation of Dunn's value. So for a good prospect for the Kings, are you talking
0: like Bjorn Fort or one of those kind of guys, or more? a little bit lower down, like Akil Thomas or one of those guys.
1: Yeah. I think Akil Thomas is a good example. I wouldn't say, you know, not Byfield, not Turcotte, maybe Mm -hmm. not even Arthur Kaliev, unless it was like a one for one, but maybe like a Tyler Madden, someone like that. Akil Thomas, those would be good examples. Samuel Fagemo, that kind of uh tier of prospects. The Kings are so deep that like, those are Mm -hmm. still good prospects right there. Yeah. They've got an embarrassment of riches. Mm
0: -hmm. And another team that is looking for defensemen as well is, Boston and Philly, and they've kind of come up in the news a lot. I mean, Philly, they lost a couple guys or they lost, who was it, Niskanen in this offseason? Yep. And Nine he was kind two. of a, a key piece for them. So what, what? who do you think they could go out for? Like Boston, would they be a good guy for Ekholm? Maybe Philly goes for Savard, one of those kind of guys? Or how do you see this kind of playing out?
1: Yeah. I, I think Boston to me is the team that needs ECOM the most for sure. I think they should just go all in because we know they're getting, they're getting close to the end of this run. You know, Tuka Rask is a pending UFA. David Krejci is too. Uh, Trees Bergeron is into his mid thirties. Now they're starting to limit his minutes. So he doesn't break down. And Brad Marshall is past the 30 mark as well. So it's not that the, that the, the Bruins are, are, are screwed in the future, but we know like in terms of this, this peak that they're in, they've been in the past, you know, president's trophy last year, Stanley cup final year before they've got to take their shot. And of course they lost two crucial pieces of the left side of their blue line in Torrey Krug and Zidane Chara. So I think Ekholm is someone, if you put him on the Bruins, it it turns them back into a, a top-tier contender. And the great thing about Eckholm is that he's not a rental. He's a luxury rental because you get him for two playoff runs. He's got two years left and he only makes $3.75 million. And for a player that's that's so impactful, such a good shutdown defender, that's an absolute steal of a price for him. So if I were the Bruins, I would just I would be tripping over myself to try and get Eckholm. And I think, yeah, Savard's a good example for Philly. I think they need someone who um, that right side can be sort of a middle a middle pair guy who can play a physical game. And it's strange what's happened to the Flyers this year because last year they improved so much defensively. And, and I think, you know, Niskanen was probably a big part of that, not just because of his own play, but I think he was a good mentor for the young defensemen like Travis Sanheim and Philippe Myers and, and Ivan Provorov. Um, so to bring in another veteran guy to stabilize that group would help. I know they did sign or Gustafson, Gustafson in the offseason, but he's an offensive guy, right? He's not going to be... Mm-hmm. the the, the smack you in the mouth shut down guy when when you're trying to protect the lead that's just not who he is
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and with you we talked about
0: Nashville a little bit Neckholm and they're kind of like they're in a weird phase where everybody is in the everybody that you hear from Nashville is in the news and they could be traded I know Toronto's been linked to Mm -hmm. Grandlin and Forsberg do you see Nashville going on like a full out they're
1: just selling everything this season or do you think they'll wait a couple years yet It's funny with the Leafs in Nashville, it's like you're going to see a headline like Toronto Maple Leafs acquire Nashville Predators because they're linked to, it feels like they're linked to every guy in the team. Um, And I do, I am suspecting that we're going to see something major because, you know, David Poyle as a GM has always been aggressive. He's always been willing to take chances and we're not, we're not used to seeing him with his back to the wall in in a, you know, facing the idea of blowing up a team because his teams are always competitive. But right now what we're looking at is the Predators 10 points. Out of a playoff spot. That's the weird thing with that cutoff, the 14 team cutoff in these realigned divisions this year. You can fall way out of it. And the predators, you know, their playoff chances look pretty hopeless. They're ravaged by injuries right now. Ryan Ellis and Roman Yosi and Matt Duchesne and UC Saros. So I, I really do think that there's smoke, there's fire to the smoke, uh, in terms of Nashville blowing it up. And you know, Forsberg and Ekholm they have a year left each, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that just makes their trade value that much higher. And Forsberg on a team that's not scoring, he's somehow having it. A really good year, probably on pace for the best year of his career, so his trade is high. Michael Grandland, of course, is a rental. In terms of the Leafs, I think all three of those players, and those are the three the, the main commodities in Nashville, right? I think all three of them would have appeal, um, and the Leafs kind of like Boston. They're a team they've got to take their chance. They finally are they're in a division where a Canadian team's going to make the final four. So I think I think they have to do whatever it takes because you're going to have Freddie Anderson, uh, UFA, Zach Hyman, UFA. We don't know what the Leafs are going to look like next year. This is probably one of their best chances to take a shot. So um, Philip Forsberg would be a really good fit for them. Uh, Michael Grandlin, maybe even more so he, I think Forsberg is a better player, but Grandlin can play center and the wing and the Leafs could use a third line center because they're, they're using Joe Thornton and Jason Spezza as wingers primarily right mm-hmm. now. So I do see a lot of fits. And if I were to predict um, who the Leafs get, I, I think it's a fair guess to say they will get at least a Nashville predator mm-hmm. at the trade deadline or leading up to the deadline. The other, the other thing, and it was James Myrtle of the athletic, that pointed this out this week is, you know, the Leafs are so far ahead in the North it's very advantageous because this year um, the teams in the North have a big disadvantage for trading because the the 14 day quarantine, but Mm -hmm. if you're the Leafs, you can afford to wait for someone who comes over if you acquire them soon because you're already very comfortably in a playoff spot.
0: Mm -hmm. And with Forsberg, I I don't, I haven't heard him be linked to Montreal, but I just think it'd be a great fit because Montreal is the kind of team. They generate so many chances, but they kind of struggle with finishers. And Forsberg's kind of a great finisher. Do you
1: think Forsberg could fit into Montreal? I mean, I, I think Forsberg could fit in everywhere, but I think the mm-hmm. Habs, you know, they're, I agree that they, they lack a superstar. I don't think to me, the wing is where they need the help most because they're still overall strong on the wings. You know, bringing in Josh Anderson to Foley and Brendan Gallagher, Joel Arm is pretty underrated. Thomas Tatar having not a great year, but again, overall, if you look at the, the entire group, I think they're fairly deep on the wings. I think what the Habs are really lacking is more of a big picture thing. I, they don't have a true superstar center. They're deep at center. And, you know, I've said before Nick Suzuki, people say he might be the next Patrice Bergeron. And I say, yes, exactly. The next Patrice Bergeron, not the next Cindy Crosby. Mm-hmm. So what I mean is the Habs don't have one of those guys who's going to flirt with the scoring title someday. So big picture, I think they need that more than they need a winger. So, um, you know, does that mean they could be in on Jack Eichel, something like that, right, Mm -hmm. when when the time comes? Uh, But this season, I actually think what the Habs need more is a defenseman, and I think they're a team that should be in on Matias Ekholm uh, to help solidify that group.
0: I've heard Matias Ekholm to Montreal a lot recently, and where would you slot in Ekholm? Would you slot him with Weber maybe? I don't know if they played much together. Would you slot him with Petrie, like
1: one of those guys, or where would you kind of put him? Yeah, I think. I mean, I don't think you can go wrong with either, right? So Mm -hmm. you look at Ekholm's most common partner in Nashville has been PK Subban, Um, and it's really if you look at like Petrie and Weber, they both have somewhat similar games. I think Petrie, I think, is a bit more daring rushing the puck. Now he's changed his game a lot in the last few years, so maybe the, the the best analog to Subban would be what Petrie brings to the table. It's like Petrie's almost playing like Subban did in his peak. So that would be a good pairing, I think, but you can't go wrong. I just think uh, Ekholm is such a difference maker that any pair he joins is going to be stronger as a result. And with Montreal, I, there hasn't been
0: any rumors of it, but I just think this would be a great fit as well. Uh, Columbus, they need a center. They've Domi's kind of looked really bad this season. Koivu retired. And they kind of, they like the defensive players. Do you think Deneau could fit in to Columbus? Cause he's a very good defensive center even a
1: two-way center. Would he fit there? I, I do. The thing is, I don't think he can fit in right now. I think he can fit in in the summer because he's a pending unrestricted free agent. So Columbus is slipping out of the playoff picture. They're hanging on by thread. So it's too risky, I think, to, to uh, give up assets, to bring in a guy who might not resign. I think Deneau would be a really nice target uh, to sign as a free agent in the offseason for Columbus. Absolutely. I think that would be a great
0: fit. And D'Anoa is a really good analytics. So I just want to know what are your kind of thoughts on analytics? Do you think it's the way of the game or are you just not a fan?
1: Uh, I, I think I, I definitely fall a much deeper on the analytics side than not. Right. So if you look at mm-hmm. most of the work I do, I, I dip into analytics as a way to illustrate certain things, but I think we're, we're in a place now. And I kind of find this is the case in the entire era of social media where everything is so polarizing and people aren't really allowed to have moderate opinions on subjects. And it's like, you're either diehard analytics and you're posting charts nonstop, or you're an old (laughs) dinosaur who does who hates analytics and is dumping on it and, you know, only believes in the eye test and you're constantly feuding. But I think it's okay to exist between the two. And I don't think many people do. It seems like you're always lumped in with one or the other. And, you know, overall relative to the entire population of hockey writers, I guess I would still land on the, on the young side because I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not 40 yet. I'm still in my 30s. So I'm relatively young. I'm more of an analytics guy than not. If you look at, you know, nine out of 10 things I write will involve analytics, but they'll also involve analytics that are probably a little out of date because I, I'm i not so young and so with the times that I can keep up with how much it changes. And I think there's, there's still sort of... Um, I don't know what the word is. There's a, there's a growing up that needs to happen for the analytics crowd. And again, mm-hmm. I'm part, I'm not dissing the analytics crowd because I consider myself a member of that crowd, but growing up for two reasons. One, um, the stats are still young and they're still evolving. And I remember Kyle Dubas told me this like six years ago that, you know, hockey's still way behind sports like baseball uh, in terms of the accuracy of the stats. So the stats are constantly changing and we keep finding better ones, but overall, I think in 10 years, we might have an entirely different set of stats that we consider accurate. So, we, we have to see the numbers grow up and mature into more accurate ones. And I think also just the way that the community carries itself, um, it, it locks people out. And I think that there's a temptation to, to just, you know, kind of point your finger and laugh at the, Oh, look at the old guys that don't get analytics. And I think there's a brashness kind of a rudeness sometimes um, in terms of how the analytics crowd can treat people who don't buy into it. And I don't think mm-hmm. it helps. I think it all it does is it just makes that, that adversarial relationship with the old guard, even more pronounced. And you get more and more of those feuds uh, happening between, you know, the old Edmonton writer and then the young guy with all the charts. And I, I don't, I don't agree with either, either side. I, I definitely am more of an analytics guy. Cause I think the numbers can tell you a lot about how someone's playing. And, you know, I'm, I'll be one of those big, the biggest William Nealander defenders around. I don't care if there's one clip of him taking a shift off. I look at the overall results for sure. But I think, you know, the people that understand and use analytics the best are the ones that under that that realize that it can be a tool that you use with other stuff so it's okay to still use your eyes to to pick up on little things that that help right so you know when a scout tells you that a player has a tendency for taking selfish penalties rather than team penalties so you know you you you, the player retaliates when something's done to him and he, he takes a penalty while his team is up a goal or the player sticks up for a teammate who got hurt. Like that's still a useful trait. It's not analytics. That's more eye test, but it's something you can add to an overall player's kind of scouting report that gives you a, a, a better overall picture. So yeah, I'd say long story short, I'm definitely pro analytics. I'm an analytics guy. If, you, if there was an old guard person, they would say, oh yeah, you're, you're one of those analytics kids. But if an analytics kid talked to me, they'd say, oh, you're a little behind the times there Larkin. You're, you're using the wrong stats. So mm-hmm. I think I fall kind of in between the two categories. So for old stats, you mean like you probably use Corsi a lot then? Yeah, I still use Corsi. I don't use it nearly as much as I as I used to. But, um, you know, I, it's like I still I get most of my stats from natural stat trick because I think mm-hmm. it's just very clean and easy to read. But most people would say, well, you got to be on Evolving Hockey because they have the RAPM and I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a member, so I can't get those stats that easily, yeah. right? So I think, okay, I know I can still – glean a lot by looking at a player you know how many shot attempts are you getting per 60 minutes are they high danger attempts are they are they higher low quality what's your expected goals it's not perfect and i know there are better stats out there and i i take a little longer to catch on than the people that are right at the cutting edge but Mm -hmm. i still think you can you can gain a lot uh from those numbers they still give you a more uh, they paint a better picture of of how big or or small a players impact is
0: so would you say they're like good supplementary like you have to watch the game but it's a good add-on
1: to have yeah, it's funny. I almost skew the other way. I think my default is to look at the analytics first. Like if someone says, hey, what kind of season is is so-and-so having? The first thing I'm going to do is not look for clips of that guy playing. The first thing I'm going to do is look at his analytics. So I, I do land that far on the other side. And I say, Oh, you know, a like guy wrote something today. It's like, oh, Dustin Brown's having a great year. And I look in his analytics. And I'm like, uh, eh, not really. He's not generating shots any better than he did during his bad years. He's just his shooting percentage is high at five on five. Right. So I do skew that way first, but I also think you can still then go and watch a game and you can see little things that wouldn't get picked up. uh, Just, you know, know, as the dinosaurs would say on a spreadsheet, Uh, (laughs) but I think supplementary is the word or maybe complementary is the word they can help each other. And I think the best, even, you know, the best of the people that are on the inside of the game, whether it's coaches or GMs, the ones that use both, in conjunction with each other, I think are the most successful.
0: Speaking about coaches, I got a quote here from Maurice and I'm just going to read it. And I want to know any thoughts on it. You'll do your deep, uh, deep, you'll do your deep dives and your analytics. And boy, do they do a horse's ass job of telling you what five guys do? What do you kind of think about that? Those comments from Maurice?
1: Yeah, it's not a surprise. And it's anyone who's from the older generation, right? We're not going to see the the, the coaches and players that fully embrace analytics for another maybe 10 years, right? Once, Once it's grandfathered into the sport. Then you might have a coach who grew up or was still playing during the analytics era or something like that but i don't think you're going to teach an old dog new tricks um and i know mark shifley of course was kind of dumping on analytics too i don't think it matters as much for players to care about them um but i i, I think it's a little bit myopic when a coach doesn't because i think you can you can learn um mm-hmm. about what a player's doing and what their impact is how, how well they're driving the play and i think that's useful information to have. But I understand, you know, it's just uh, coaching is an emotion-based job a lot of the time. And you're you're not going to want to coach with a a, a chart. You're going to want to coach with how you interact with players. And I think it's a it's a really hard habit to change. Um, But and I'm not saying that Paul Maurice has to come out tomorrow and say, I love analytics. I'm just I'm just looking forward to you know when the day we see a a high profile coach say something like, well yeah. You know, I, I look at the analytics and I look at my, and I also have relationships with my players and I really like um, studying how they interact with each other and using a bit of both. I think that's the the mm-hmm. ultimate, the ultimate path. And would you say that um,
0: GMs, like they kind of need to use analytics or not need to like, it's good for them to make the decisions. Like, cause you can use analytics to kind of weigh and see like, is this a positive move for me? I know like wins above replacements, a big stat now. I'm not a big mm-hmm. fan of it, but uh what do you kind of think gm should be using it
1: yeah and i I do think gms they do use analytics they do they use analytics way more than they let on and i can tell you this from my own experiences and what i've learned so this is true they they, they use analytics way more than they let on and they've been doing it way longer than people realize i'm talking years and years and years and uh, I, i think that they use them especially when it comes to negotiating contracts and i think that you know, agents now have to be much more in touch with their players' analytics because they know that the GMs are going to be studying that stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, I think they're I think GMs are far more in tune with those numbers than players are than, than coaches are, and I think that's going to keep changing because now teams, of course, are hiring uh, analytics staff to really produce the. And and I also think it's almost like you know the idea when people say, "Oh, the military has technology people don't even know about yet." I think that teams have analytics that people don't even know about yet because they can just put so many resources into them and i think it was kyle Mm -hmm. dubas that said something last year i think he was referring to cody cc but it would you know because cody cc is a a popular analytics whipping boy and i think dubas said something like well you know the numbers that that no one else has our analytics tell us that he does a lot of things that people don't realize are good so that you know not that i necessarily agree but (laughs) it's the idea that uh it implied that you know there are teams that have access to levels of, of analysis that the public doesn't get, because mm-hmm. there is a difference like because
0: um what was that there was a public guy who just got hired by i think it was sport logic he was like really big name in analytics uh, yes. his name's slipping from my mind but it's a lot different in the public than it would what would you agree was it sean
1: tierney like, sean tierney
0: yeah yeah that's the guy
1: yeah yeah um but sorry you were saying sorry didn't mean to interrupt you there
0: no no, no i just slipped my mind there but um yeah, I was just getting into analytics and I was, I loved charting hockey's website. And then I was reading it. And then like a day later, he gets hired by SportLogic and his
1: site sat down. So I'm like, oh, that sucks. But yeah, that's been a pattern for the last like five to 10 years. Every time that there's someone gets to the top of the pile uh, in terms of having a good analytics site, they get snapped up by a team and then mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to start looking again for the best site. It's frustrating.
0: <laughs> and we were speaking about GMs there. So I have a question for you. If you were an NHL GM, what would you do and which team would you want to be the GM of?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. Um, well, I'm a big believer of, um, I'm not going to say I'm a proponent of tanking, but because, you know, you have to do it right. But I, I'm, I'm really not a fan of living in the murky middle. So what I would not do is say, for example, what the Calgary Flames were doing, you know, limping along. They've won one playoff series since, or, or, or yeah, one playoff series, I think, if you don't count the plans, mm-hmm. one playoff series win since 2004. They're always kind of decent. They're spending a lot of money on veteran contracts. They're limping along, but they're really not a threat to win the Stanley Cup. That would not be my style at all. I would be uh, much more extreme. Uh, I would be, you know, tanking hard uh, to try and load up on picks. I'd be kind of like the the Houston Astros, I think. Uh, Extreme tank and then load up and be strong, possibly for a long time, I hope. Uh, And obviously you can't, you know, you can't always tank because people try to use stories like, look at what the LA Kings did in Pittsburgh and Chicago, you know, in the 2010s, but for every LA, Pittsburgh, Chicago, there's also an Arizona and a Columbus, like there are teams like that, that they always had high picks too. And they couldn't Mm -hmm. get, they couldn't emerge from the depths. Right. So I think you do still have to eventually start peppering your roster with, with players who know how to win because otherwise your, your culture, team culture gets comfortable with losing. So I wouldn't want to tank forever, but I I still think you have to be bad to be good in today's NHL. And, And it was Ken Holland that told me this, you know, he said, in the salary cap era, the key to winning, you have to have really good players who are still on their entry level deals. So it's more of a young man's game. And you need to have elite players that are taking your team far when they're still making $925,000 a year. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a crucial part of the rebuild. And so you try to do it within a few years, but it is about tanking, getting really good players that you pick high in the draft. They can go right to the NHL at a pretty young age, be really dominant within their first three years of the league. And that's sort of the pattern, I think um so that's sort of how i would um that would be my management style i'd be extreme and aggressive and so i know there was a second part of the question i can't remember what the second part was which team would you take take over and what would you do well it's it's tough okay so is it you you could say you know um you could you know i would would take over the la kings because they're you know they're rebuilding they have lots of prospects but i I think for 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 the sake of the discussion i think it's got to be Uh, I got to be starting from square one to see what I can really do. So give me the Buffalo Sabres all day, baby. Uh, I I think they're just an absolute tire fire. And I feel horrible for that market because I always say this. I think Buffalo's I I consider Buffalo the pound for pound champ in terms of uh, passion of hockey market. This is a team that is going to miss the playoffs for a 10th year in a row. That's going to tie a record yet every year, seemingly every year they're at the top of the TV ratings in the playoffs. So they're, They're leading the TV ratings as a local market, even though their team isn't even in the playoffs. That just shows how passionate that market is. They deserve a winner. So I would want to help. And I just think it would be a fun challenge trying to figure Mm -hmm. out how to, how to save that team. So if you were GM, would you move Eichel and uh, Ristolainen like those kind of guys? Uh, I think I probably would. I think you'd have to start over. And I think Eichel, you know, he's what is he in his sixth year in the league now? And um I, I think he's gotten too used to losing. And I think mentally he's, he might be checked out um, and needs a fresh start. And it's a risky thing to do because you, you know, sometimes you get a really great return when you trade a superstar, but often you, you get the Joe Thornton trade where you get, you know, Wayne Primo, Marco Sturm and Brad Stewart. And mm-hmm. it's entirely possible that you get that for Eichel, but I still think it's run its course with him in my mind. Um, but the, the number one thing I would want to do if I was GM is beg ownership to hire a, a, a president of hockey operations, because you need a buffer, between the pagulas and the gm and i think that's the biggest problem in buffalo right now they don't have hockey ops a hockey operation guy they don't they had pat they had pat lafontaine for like uh, 17 minutes and then he quit <laughs> so I, I think that's oh, the number wow. one problem where you have ownership that's too hands hands-on and uh they have no problem spending money but they have a history of spending money on the wrong people whether it's Billy Leno or Kyle Okpozo or Christian Erihoff or Jeff Skinner or Taylor mm-hmm. Hall. It just seems to always land uh,
0: in the wrong place. So who would you throw in as a hockey op? Like, do you know any free agents that you want to pick
1: up as a hockey operations guy? Well, typically, you know, it's not always the case, but the way the way teams do it um, is they often have, a, you know, a former franchise great. So it's like, you know, do you try to bring in like Dominic Hasek? But I think what I would do is... Uh, I would try to poach, I would try to poach Brendan Shanahan because I think he's a good example of someone who he, he came in when the franchise, the Leafs were a laughing stock, They were an embarrassment mm-hmm. and he didn't just tame, change the team. He changed the team culture. You know, he did things like properly retiring players, numbers, just the, the entire way that franchises operated top to bottom changed when Brendan Shanahan came. So to me, he, he's the template of someone who understands how to just gut an entire franchise's culture not just the on ice product. So I am just trying to poach him, steal him from the Leafs and say, Hey, do you want a new challenge? Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> All right. And moving on to the segment I call hot seat, where I, I put like someone in hockey operations, whether it's head coach GM, it's usually a head coach. I put him on the hot seat. And this week I have John Tortorella. So what are your kind of thoughts on John Tortorella? How much time do you think he has left in the NHL,
1: whether it's with Columbus or any other team? Well, I do think he'll land on his feet again because, you know, he's got a proven track record and, you know, he's a Stanley Cup winner and and, and what what he does, it works for for a period, right? And he's definitely this generation's Mike Keenan. There's no question about it. Um, he's someone who he is at his best when he's taking a plucky team that is lower on talent and he can get that team to play above uh, its talent level and he can get that team to buy in. And, you know, for a long time, the Blue Jackets, they've had the type of players that fit his style. They've been a team, a workman like team, you know, guys like Boone Jenner, and Nick Foligno, uh, Josh Anderson, before he left or before he was traded. Um, and they fit, they fit the Tortorella scheme and he was a really good fit for that market. Even his general manager, Yarmo Kekaline, is a pretty like tough old school kind of guy. Um, but we all know that Tortorella's act, eventually it, it grows thin because it's exhausting. You know, he, mm-hmm. from a fitness level, he really puts his players through the paces and, and everywhere he goes, there's often a short-term spike in that team's productivity uh, within a year or two. And then eventually he loses that team. And it's just, that's going to always be his pattern. And I, I do think if, if his time in Columbus is coming to a close, it's because, you know, Yarma line is changing the, the makeup of the team. And he's brought in more skill, right? Max Domi and Patrick Laine mm-hmm. uh, as the most prominent examples. And those guys are not Tortorella type players, right? They're, those mm-hmm. players have reputation for being a bit uh, volatile in terms of their production and their attitudes. And I understand why Keckline is doing it. He wants to inject more skill into this team. And I don't think it was the wrong decision, but if it's no longer a fit for Tortorella, maybe it means that it's time for Tortorella to go and he'll land on his feet. You know, there's going to be a team that needs a kick in the butt. Um, well, you know, maybe it's whether it's Seattle, I don't know whether Seattle would consider it, mm-hmm. um, but there, there's going to be a team out there. Maybe De- Detroit's a team. I think that, uh, you know, Jeff Blasio has been, he's dutifully, guided that team for a long time but they've been so bad he's kind of guided them through a losing era eventually they're going to need someone with a winning track record as the team starts to get better so you know maybe tortorella could be that guy i'm not sure so i I don't doubt hockey loves to recycle its personalities so Mm -hmm. if tortorella still wants to have a job he will only a matter of time
0: i was just talking with friends the other day about how much the nhl recycles their, their coaches and management it'd be interesting to see like uh a guy like jack Han go into a lineup i'd like to see what he could do as a head coach it'd be really interesting
1: oh it'd be so interesting that's you know who's i think if there's any team that would that would give him a shot it's seattle because everything seattle's done has been um outside the box progressive i'm really excited to see how they're building their franchise or just they're so modern in everything they do so you never know that would be a really fascinating fit mm-hmm. um but yeah hockey just it's there's a, it's an, there's an old school culture it's there's something comfortable about bringing the familiar face in i think you know, the majority of fans are, if you look at like a pie chart of every market, the majority of every fan base is still more of an old school mentality still. And bringing in that familiar face is, is comforting, I guess, for when a team is struggling. And it's always riskier to, to either promote from within as someone who's unproven or to go way off the board. Uh, mm-hmm. It's something I wish we saw more, but it just doesn't happen very often. I was actually just writing an article like I,
0: I'll sometimes just go write an article just when I want to do something because it gets really bored in quarantine. I was writing about Seattle and what they should do for coaches. And I put I made a dark horses list and I actually had Jack Hand at the top
1: of the list because I think he could do great work on any team, actually. For sure. And, and I, I honestly would not put anything past Seattle. I think they've just been progressive there. Uh, I think already the most progressive franchise in NHL history in terms of just employing women in, in terms of in, in major decision-making roles they're really trying to expand the horizons and not kind of operate under the uh, long established old school biases so mm-hmm. anything's possible really I'm I'm excited to see what they do I can't wait to see Seattle join the league and do you think they
0: could come out hot like a team like Vegas because if they're using like They hired someone who was like a really prominent analytic name, like not in the public sector, but in the private sector. and She's done a lot of good work. Do you think they're tracking these players? And they're like, yes, we know they're not gonna protect this guy. And we know that he could really excel in the top six role like a guy like Manji for example, do you think they could come out and win?
1: Um, Yeah, it's funny. I I got in a big fight with the Flames fan base because I had Manjupani being exposed and then they said, no way, it's going to be Sam Bennett. So I did change my projection. So I have Calgary protecting Manjupani because the Flames nation bit my head off. But uh, but I know what you're saying. uh, And I do expect Seattle to be very successful. Um, Some people say, no, everyone's going to learn from what Vegas did. But I, I say, no way. Absolutely not. For a couple of reasons. One being you you can't save GMs from themselves. They're still going to keep committing too much money to players and they're going to need financial bailouts. And also because of the flat salary cap, because of COVID, teams are in extra dire straits. Last I checked, it was like half the league with LTIR was projected to be over the cap. And teams are going to be desperate for help this summer. They're going to need to make those side deals, just like uh, every team or so many teams did with Vegas. And I think we're going to see Seattle get some awesome steals on trades. And Mm. I know that we're pairing (laughs) because I've recently reached out to the team Cause I wanted to talk to Ron Francis about his plan. And they were like, mm-hmm. and they said, no, Mr. Francis is not discussing any of his strategies right now. So like they're keeping it real close to the vest mm-hmm. and I'm expecting something really impressive. So would you say that's a smart tactic for them to do in in terms of to, to keep it close to the vest? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I don't think you want to telegraph what your plan is. And I think you want to prey on the desperation and unpredictability of, of teams, not knowing what you're going to do for sure. Mm-hmm. And because we, we know we're going to see that scrambling teams are going to say, please don't take this guy. I'll give you this pick. Or I'll, if you, if you don't take this guy, we'll give you this guy. If you take, if you're willing to t- take this expensive guy, he wages no movement clause. We'll give you this pick. I think we're going to see all that stuff again. I a hundred percent believe it. Mm-hmm. And speaking of teams
0: where it's like kind of guys who are like super expensive or uh, last year, there was that like Seth Jane, Seth Jones, hate train. I was just wondering, like, as a side question, or were you on that Seth Jones hate train?
1: Well, again, so this goes back to what we were talking about before. it's like, mm-hmm. I'm on neither. Right. It's like, it's like people say that, are you on the hate train? Are you, do you love, it's like, do you think Seth Jones is the greatest defenseman of all time? Or do you think he's the worst human being to ever walk the earth? It's like, <laughs> neither. He can be just okay. He's still a very good defenseman. He's big. He's got a great wingspan. I think that some of the shine has come off him in recent years. If you look at the deeper analytic numbers, he's not as dominant of a shutdown player as he's perceived to be. So he's somewhere in the middle and not enough people are willing to say that it's okay to say something is just okay. And I Mm -hmm. I always compare it to the movie Joker. When Joker came out, people are, people are like, Oh, this is, this is an amazing performance by Walking Phoenix. Oh my, it's so good. And other people are saying, no, this is a horrible movie. It (laughs) promotes incels and it's a ripoff of taxi driver. And I say, it's neither it was definitely a ripoff but it was a good performance Eh, it was a seven and that's kind of how i feel about seth jones (laughs) it's okay to have a moderate opinion
0: so would you say he's kind of like one of those flashy players that if someone let's say someone doesn't really know much about analytics and he's just a really flashy player and you kind of hear even if you like listen to games you can hear like a broadcaster like seth jones that's an easy name to say and it just comes up a lot
1: And he's got the exciting pedigree, right? As the son of an NBA player Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, very hyped in his draft. You remember we had him on our cover of our magazine. We thought he was going to go first Mm -hmm. that year Um, and he ended up going fourth. But I I, I think it's just that he's got the, the toolbox that a coach or GM would salivate over because he's got great skating. He's got such a long reach. He's tall. Like he can play in all situations. He can shoot the puck. He can do everything. So I think visually like, you know, 20 years ago, people would be even more excited about Seth Jones. I think, uh, mm-hmm. but in terms of in terms of flashy, I, I don't think Jones is the flashiest. I think Zacharewski is flashier than Seth Jones because they use Zach Zacharewski to rush the puck almost like a forward. He's had 20 goals last year in the, what 60 something games. Uh, this year, it's been a disaster. I don't know what's going on. Maybe he's playing through too many injuries or what's happening. But I'd say I'd say Wrensky is more the flashy guy. But Jones, yeah, visually, he still has the total package that I think. Every team wishes because they, they, you know, he has the skill and the speed, but also the, the size. Um, but then again, you look closer at those numbers and he's not as good as he appears to be. And I, I do think as a result, and what's interesting is, you know, if you look at the Professional Hockey Writers Association, uh, every year more and more members join and some members age out and the ones joining are younger. So we're going to keep seeing the shift in terms of the mentality of, of what type of play gets rewarded. Mm-hmm. So based on that, maybe Seth Jones has missed his best chance at the Norris. There's been a tendency to give it to someone who's quote unquote do, um, which I, I have always hated. Uh, like, I don't think Burns or, or, or Doughty should have won it. I think that should have been two more Eric Carlson Norris. Um, but maybe that trend's going to end because the younger voting base is more analytics oriented and they're mm-hmm. not as enamored with Jones.
0: And continue with Columbus, like with the hot seat and John Tortorella, um, Merzalikens has, I don't know if he's been off to a rough start, but he's been in a, in, a, in some rumors. And do you think that if they could move Merzalikens and maybe get
1: a couple of things for the future, do you think that'd be a good move for them? Yeah, I think they should consider it because, you know, it's always been the split between Eunice Corpusalo and Albus Merzlikens, And, you know, I think it's debatable who's better. I think Merzlikens to me has a higher ceiling. Like he's, he, when he's hot, he's hotter. Um, but Corp Salo maybe is a bit more reliable game to game.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but if you, I think the perception league wide is that both goalies are, are starting material. Um, the problem is right now, it's like goalies to me are the running backs in the NFL. They're so unpredictable. Like look at what Kevin Lankinen is doing. Mm-hmm. And every time you try to anoint someone as, as the next big thing, then he struggles, you know, look at like carry price is having a really tough year. Carter Hart's been slumping terribly. And it's just, so, so yes, I think does Merzlikens have trade value? Yes. Could he help a team? Yes. But do you want to pay too much for him? No, because you could give up an important asset for him. And then he ends up being your backup because goaltending is so fickle, right? So I think you try to, to get him for a cheap price, you know, whether you trade someone who needs to change his, change of scenery or a mid-range pick, maybe it's a third round pick, something like that. I Mm -hmm. would do that to get Merzlikens, but I wouldn't overpay.
0: Okay. Yeah. And with, with Columbus, do you think that if they lose a couple more games, they're currently on a three-game losing streak, if I'm not mistaken. Do you think if they lose the next couple of games, they'll consider firing Tortorella?
1: I think you have to consider. Yeah, I don't I don't know 100% if it'll happen midseason, but then again, mm-hmm. things are so nuclear. They go nuclear with Tortorella. Maybe it has to go that way because, you know, I think Guillermo Keklana has been extremely loyal to Torts. And like I've said mm-hmm. already, you know, mentality-wise, they're they're kind of kindred spirits. But if you look at the comments coming from Patrick Liney you know, after the last game too, it's like, I just don't know when things go sour with, with Tortorella in a room, they go really sour, really fast. Mm-hmm. And maybe the situation becomes too toxic. So you could be onto something, maybe a few more losses and they have to decide to part ways.
0: Yeah. And if you look at like from Keke Leinen's position, like you've given away, I, I don't know if you consider Dubois a superstar, but you've kind of given away a, a somewhat of a star player and you get Line and he's getting benched. At what point does it become why are you not playing these superstars and why are you benching them
1: yeah and and i've said it before you know yes line is always going to be streaky and and it's always been his tendency but it's like if you're tortorella you know you have a you have a fine italian sports car why are you and you're getting mad at it because it's not going off-roading in the mud well that's not what it does (laughs) right it's that's not how the vehicle performs and you know what you were getting you know, when you when you got it, everyone's saying, wow, you got the, the fastest, sexiest sports car on the market. And then is like, well, it doesn't matter. I don't care if it gets dented. I'm just going to drive and I'm going to take it into the forest and drive it <laughs> through the mud with a bunch of trucks. And then I get it. And then if it doesn't, if the if the if the sports car has bad tracks and I get to kick it and and I get to bring it to the mechanic. It's like, well, what are you doing? That's not what it does. <laughs> so embrace what Patrick Patrick Liney is and let him do his thing. That was a perfect analogy there.
0: I, I oh man, that was great. <laughs> and if you look at some of the numbers, like team numbers, I was looking before and I wrote them down. They're 25th in the power play, 28th in penalty kill, they're 15th in expected goals against per 60, and they're 30th in expected goals for per 60. So you think they kind of move if they're gonna move, make moves, move for like a star forward or someone who can actually put up some points or generate some chances.
1: Yes, and I think you know that's why they got Lining and Rosselig and Max Domi because last year they were one of the elite defensive teams in the league, uh, and they just were having trouble scoring, right? And so they thought, okay, we need that complementary center to Dubois, but now you know dubois gone now, they're completely gutted up the middle, they've got nothing up the middle in terms of their long term plan, so they absolutely need need to, to start over, uh, in terms of just building some better offensive players at center. What's concerning this year is that you know with those numbers you just you just gave me mm-hmm. they're only mediocre defensively too so that part of their game is slipping as well and to me what you're seeing is I think the franchise kind of just crumbling and and I do wonder if, if they're suddenly and it's what I thought this is I thought this team was a Stanley Cup final dark horse going mm-hmm. into the year but their identity is completely kind of crumbled and they're not really doing anything well so mm-hmm. I wonder if you have to go backward to go forward and kind of blow it up a little bit
0: yeah, because if you look at the past couple of years, they've lost a lot of good star players leaving the city. Like even Josh Anderson leaves Columbus and he's not injury-ridden this season and he's looking really good.
1: Panera right, and, goes to New York and like that. And their captain, Nick Foligno, is a pending unrestricted free agent. Ilene is a restricted free agent. David Savard's an unrestricted free agent. So there's a lot of uncertainty looming for other members of their core right now too. Mm-hmm. And
0: would you say they go and they move from Savard? Do you think they can get a solid piece for Savard?
1: I think so. Yes. Because, um, he's just got that, you know, again, this is more of the old school crowd You know, because he can play a physical game. He can block shots. He plays that grinding style that I think plays better in the playoffs than the regular season. He can play top four minutes. He can kill penalties, all those things that a coach, an old school coach that doesn't even look at analytics is going to want. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think based on that, yes, I, I think he, I could see you, you know, to me, he's the kind of guy where it's like, what's his real value. Maybe a second round pick, but I could see a team overpaying giving a first round pick for him. And a
0: team that's kind of looking to build for the playoffs, like where do you think Savard would fit kind of best? We talked a little bit about
1: Philly before, but is there any other places that he'd fit? Um, Off the top of my head, I think I think Winnipeg to me, because I still think that they've had problems on, on the right side of their blue line. And I think they should consider themselves a win now operation, even though Neil Pionk has been really good. He's been <laughs> the best defenseman involved in that trade. Um but I, I think that Savard would be an interesting fit because I, I still think you could put him into a top four role because um, mm-hmm. you, you'd have, you also have Dylan DeMello, who's been good as well, mm-hmm. um, uh, overall an underrated player. But so that would be one example of a market. But I think, you know, uh, there are a lot of teams that are looking for defensemen. Uh, the ones I think of off the top of my head are all looking for a left shot, like Boston, for example. But I still think almost any team could use Savard. Uh, you know, that includes the Leafs as well. Um he's kind of a, a classic playoff rental because he can, he can chew up those minutes and you can put him out there on the penalty kill on a really good team. He could be third pair, like a luxury third pair guy. Mm-hmm. Most teams, he'd probably be a second pair guy. Um, so I, I feel like there'd be 10 teams that'd be interested in him.
0: Okay. Yeah. And you were talking about Winnipeg and Pionk and DeMello. And do you think, cause DeMello has been playing third pair a lot. He's been playing with, he played with Logan Stanley last night. Um, he was playing with Josh Morrissey last season a lot and they clicked together. So I don't know kind of why they broke up, but do you think they should consider trying to put Morrissey back with DeMello and then move, try and get a left shot defenseman to play
1: with Pionk and that kind of be set your top four? I think that would be a good idea. Um, I know that, you know, Morrissey had a tough time last year, but DeMello was quite effective last year and that's why mm-hmm. Winnipeg brought him, back, or brought him back. I think he was one of the more underrated shutdown guys in the game. And and we know Winnipeg, Winnipeg has a problem with team defense right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that's why Connor Halibut won the Vezina. Uh last I checked, I know this was the case uh as of a few days ago, they, they were allowing like the most high danger chances. I think they had the highest highest expected goals against in the league. Mm-hmm. They just kind of like they, they kind of remind me of uh in the Pat Quinn era, the way the Leafs treated 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 uh, Curtis Joseph and Ed Belfort. Like, don't worry, you just save the puck. Uh we're just gonna let teams pepper you and we're just going to try and score sorry about that we're just not going to play defense and that's kind of what the jets do these days they just let connor Helbig, Helbig bail them out we saw it last night in the game against the leafs um and it's it's a risky strategy because if Helbig gets hurt or he just burns out then i think a lot of pucks go in the net against winnipeg
0: so last question before i let you go i know you're a really busy guy so the Jets, they got a lot of guys like Wheeler and Shifley don't play well defense. So do you think they should consider splitting them up or trying to get some new combinations going with a balance of defense and offensive
1: capabilities? It's tough. And I know there are some of the best lines in the league uh, tend to do everything well, right? If you look at like the pastor Neck line, um, but I'm okay with the idea of a line that just is really, really dominant offensively. It's more just a matter of do the Jets need to bring in more bodies? They need to bring in more depth, and uh, it's hard because they're still a pretty deep forward group, but maybe they're not all defensively conscientious enough. And I, I, I see the Jets as a team that you know, if I'm Kevin Shelday off, I, I think I'm willing to take risk, and you know whether it means trading a prospect like Christian Veseline. um, I would go after some upgrades because this is for every team in the North. This is a unique opportunity where, you know, there's going to be one Canadian team in the final four. And if you look at the Jets core, you know, they're not that old of a team, but you know, Blake Wheeler is getting up there. And I, I still think that they're, you know, they're not, I don't want to say they're near the end of their run, but they're kind of right in the the sweet spot when they should mm-hmm. be going deeper into playoffs. But I think it, it, it's going to require a little bit of regression. And uh, Kevin Sheveldayoff has been mostly, um, a conservative GM. He did finally go out and get Paul Stasny at the trade deadline a couple of years ago. They brought him back. I know, of course he made the Dubois trade. Um, so he's showing signs now of, of being willing to take more chances. And I think he understands that this team is kind of in its win now window. All right. Thanks so much for coming on.
0: Great interview for everybody. Go check out Matt Larkin at the hockey news. It's actually a great place for hockey resources. I know I've always looked there first for analysis before I like Before I could make my hockey mind up and I could think of what actually happens, I'd look at hockey news and then I'd think a little bit and I'd kind of, it, it was a great resource for me and I still read them a lot. I got like three binders or like three baskets full of hockey news magazines.
1: So you do great work, Matt, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Brody, and thanks for the support as well.
0: If you enjoyed this week's episode of the Broly Talks Hockey Podcast, make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube and leave a five-star review on Apple.